0: Today on Something You Should Know, when is a small pizza a better deal than a large pizza? I'll explain basic pizza math. Then, the problem of too much to do, not enough time to do it, and too many things to remember.
1: You need to capture all that stuff, get it out of your head. Your head's a crappy office, and most people are still trying to use their head to remember, remind, prioritize, and manage relationships with a whole lot more than four things. And new cognitive science research has basically proven that you try to keep more than four things in your head, you're going to sub-optimize your cognitive process.
0: Also, are you dehydrated right now? Let's find out with a quick test. And how to optimize your brain. And there are a lot of things that get in the way.
2: The higher levels of stress that Americans have, it really wreaks havoc on the brain. We combine that with the diet, our sedentary lifestyle, because of course our commutes are getting longer, so we're sitting more, we're working longer hours. All of these are contributing factors.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Something you should know, fascinating intel, the world's top experts, and practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to an all-new episode of Something You Should Know, and we start today with math. But a special kind of math, it's pizza math. When you order a pizza, the large size is always going to be a better deal. I know this because it's all in the math. An 8-inch pizza has the surface area of about 50 square inches. So you're getting 50 square inches of pizza. However, a 16-inch pizza isn't double the amount of pizza, like you might instinctively think. It's actually four times as much with 200 square inches of pizza. So if you're paying by the square inch, The 16-inch pizza should be four times the price as the 8-inch pizza, but in fact, it's usually no more than twice the price. So the bigger the pizza, usually the better deal on a per-inch basis. And that is something you should know. Too much to do and not enough time to do it. That is the lament of so many people who carry around a million things in their head, past, present, and future, all of which creates a lot of stress, a lot of mistakes and failure, and and frankly, a lot of dissatisfaction. Today, there are so many tools that are supposed to help us keep track of things to do and how productive we are. And still, life can get so overwhelming because we have too much to do and not enough time to do it. Someone who has addressed this problem for several years is David Allen. David is widely recognized as one of the world's leading experts on personal and organizational productivity. His 30-year pioneering research and coaching has earned him Forbes magazine's recognition as one of the top five executive coaches in the U.S. He's author of a book called Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. Hi, David. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for the invitation, Mike. Glad to be here. So what do you think the problem is here? As I said, there are all these apps and ways to keep track of things to do, and yet people are still all stressed out and worried that they won't get everything done. Do you think it's just a case of too much to do and not enough time to do it, or or what?
1: Oh, well, you don't need time. It doesn't take any time to have a good idea or to be creative or innovative or strategic or loving and present. Those don't require time. They require space. They require room in your head. If you're carrying two meetings ago in your head, it's hard to be creative. If you're taking home to work in your mind or work to home in your mind, you're, you're not going to be loving and present as you could be in cooking spaghetti or tucking your kids into bed. So it's really more about the distractibility of the world out there. Uh, it's not about time. And you know, most people have not implemented the best practices that I uncovered. You, you need to capture all that stuff, get it out of your head. Your head's a crappy office. And most people are still trying to use their head to remember, remind, prioritize, and manage relationships with a whole lot more than four things. And four things is about it. New cognitive science research has basically proven that you try to keep more than four things in your head, you're going to sub-optimize your cognitive process. So most people just don't know that yet.
0: So. Isn't that weird? Doesn't that seem odd though that the, the human brain is is so amazing in so many ways and yet it can only hold four things in it?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, come on, it, you you your brain evolved to survive on the savannah and the jungle and the desert and so forth. And it does a brilliant job of recognizing uh, patterns and long-term history so you know that's probably a bear up there there may be a snake in that There's berries in the bush there's a thunderstorm coming and the baby's crying and and you do that very well that's the part of your brain that works in the present tense and does brilliant stuff the computers can't even come close to that and yet you go to the store for lemons you come back with six things and no lemons you know what happened well you, you tried to use something that doesn't that's not designed for remembering and reminding you know to remember and remind and, you know, all that's doing, you know, you're keeping stuff in your head. Gee, I need to get a new adapter. I need to see if I want to get an MBA. I, what are we doing about mom's birthday? And should we hire a VP of marketing? So <laughs> if those are just in your head, you will be wake up at three o'clock in the morning with any of those. Because that part of you, if it's just in your head, has no sense of past or future. So, you know, a whole lot of the new cognitive science research has just validated what I've known for 35 years, which is your head's just a crappy office and you need to get stuff out of your head and build an external brain that you trust. Anybody listening to this who has a calendar is already doing that. You know, well, if you right. have a calendar, Mike, you, you, you already told yourself you, your head can't do it. Right. Well, my head can't
0: do some things. I probably still try to keep too much in my head. I don't put everything on the calendar. But, but what, everything you're saying implies that, okay, so if you can only keep four things in your brain, your brain's a crappy office, you get a piece of paper and a pencil, you write everything down, and the problem is now over.
1: No, it's not. The, if you look at most people's to-do list, anybody listening to this got a to-do list, just pull it out and look at it. What you'll see is an incomplete list of still unclear stuff. You'll see things like mom and bank and tooth and VP and holiday. yeah, you know, if you're even good at that, you know, so you've captured some. That's great. But you need then need to you know move to the next two steps, which are critical steps, which are, Okay, what are you going to do about it? Why would you write mom down? Good historical data. I'm sure you had one. Why would you write, well, her birthday's coming. What are you going to do about it? Uh, I guess we need to celebrate mom's birthday. Oh, great. Now you got a project. What's the next action? Oh, God. You know, I guess I ought to call my sister, see what she thinks we ought to do. Ah, very good the late great Peter Drucker would tell you, you just did the hardest thing you need to do, which is define what your work is. But if you haven't done that yet, if you just got mom on a list, that's going to remind you that you still have some thinking and decision making. You haven't finished yet. You don't have the energy to do that. So it's just telling you you're overwhelmed and reminding you about that. So unfortunately it, you have to capture first, but then you need to clarify and organize the results of that thinking so that it's truly off your brain. Yeah. You know, if you say call my sister, if you don't call her right then, Better have that on some list you look at when you're on a phone. And, oh, celebrate Bond's birthday. You better have that on some list you look at at least weekly to see how am I doing about that? What else do we need to do to make sure that happens to take it across the finish line? So defining what your work is, defining the specifics that actually lie embedded in these things that have your attention is the next two critical steps. And most people don't do those. They'll do them when the pressure forces you to, but not on the front end.
0: But some things are, don't require all that. I mean, if I write down dry cleaners, well, I, I, it means I need to go to the dry cleaner. I don't need to sit down and do a six-hour sure. uh, evaluation of my trip to the dry cleaner. It's No, either... but if
1: you have 12 errands, it's nice to have that on an errands list so you don't miss that one. Right. If that's the only errand you have to do and you know you need it, and it's automatic and it's pretty habitual. You go that way anyway. You don't need to write it down. no. Yeah, but some it's things just, are getting get a little messy because, you know,
0: celebrating mom's birthday, maybe you can't do everything right now that is involved in celebrating mom mom's birthday. You can only do a couple things because you're waiting for Susie to tell you about
1: the cake and the thing. And and so right. things then get really messy. Right. So you have a waiting for list to get back to Susie and you look at it regularly enough to see if you need to light a fire, kick or butt or do what you need to do. So you keep track of the things that have to move toward it. And that could be a few things, could be one or two, could be a whole lot. It's as much as it needs to get that off your mind. Just like you're not thinking, Mike, about where you need to be uh, two weeks from Wednesday at two o'clock in the afternoon because you trust you put the appropriate data in the right place and trust that you'll see it at the right time. So it's not on your mind. But you have to do the same thing with anything else if you want to get it off your mind. Isn't that funny that, uh, you know, you're right, I don't worry
0: about where I have to be two weeks from Wednesday at two o'clock because i I know that it, somehow that'll get taken care of. And yet, when I go to the store for lemons, which is also on my
1: mind, I get everything but the lemons. Yeah. Just to post it on the fridge. So you got lemons on the post-it and you grab the post-it before you go to the store. duh. and And yet I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, up to you, it's just it's taking up brain space, first of all, that you could be using for more creative thinking than trying to remember, remind your list. And secondly, you're going to forget lemons and they get yelled at by somebody. Yep.
0: Well, that's happened frequently. So what does this all look like? What is this? Like if I go to your office, I mean, are there lists everywhere and there are post-it notes all over the place? I mean, how do you you tame
1: it? How do you make this manageable? Well, you need a curated and, and compact list manager, frankly. You need a list of the projects you need to do and finish. You need a list of the action items that you need to take. You know, and that may look like, you know, I've got mine sorted into calls I need to make, stuff to do at the computer, stuff I need to do at home, errands I need to run, stuff I need to talk to my wife about. So I've got seven or eight different categories because it just makes it simpler to be able to see them based on those contexts and a waiting for list. And that's pretty much it. And I've got all that on the computer and, you know, I can see it on my iPhone. I can see it on my computer. It doesn't matter. So it doesn't take up a lot of space. It's not a big deal.
0: Well, it is a big deal because you wrote a book and have a whole career based on it. So it is a big deal.
1: Yeah. If it were easy, I'd have to get another job, I guess. So, you know, (laughs) you'd have (laughs) already figured this out.
0: Right. Yeah. And uh, clearly I haven't. And I've talked to you, I don't know how many times over the
1: years and I'm still. Well, uh, you figured it out. You didn't implement it. You know, it's easy to understand it, but you got to go do it if you actually want to have your head empty. But you have to decide how, whether you want your head empty or not. That's up to you.
0: Yeah, but because I imagine people have different styles of wanting of how to do this, like some people just aren't list people.
1: Some people don't like to make decisions, they don't like to keep track of stuff. They're they're yeah, and that's up to them. I'm not I'm not a proselytizer. I'm not out there telling everybody they should do this. I'm an I'm a researcher and an educator. If you want an empty head, here's how you get it. There's no simpler way, trust me. And that's up to you the degree to which you want to implement this.
0: And so when you go to implement it, if you've written everything down and you've got it, every, all your lists figured out and, and all, then w- w- how do you then, where do you start? I mean, how do you, what do you do next? I mean, it, it seems like you could
1: look at all those lists and go, well, there's no way I can get all this done. Of course not. People get mad at me for their list. I'm sorry. That's not my list. It's yours, all right? You want to keep it inside your head and be reminded that you need cat food three times as opposed to once. But then you're inappropriately engaged with your cat, you know, come on, you know, there's only, there's no reason to have a thought twice unless you like the thought. But if it's something you can't finish in the moment, but still want to, or still need to do something about it, you better externalize that so you don't overthink and keep being reminded of stuff you can't do anything about at three o'clock in the morning. You know, come on. So, It's just building a system, and then once you have the system, then you have all that stuff out of your head. Then you just trust your intuitive judgments about, you know, which of those things is best to do. If you had it, Mike, if you truly had all this inventoried out of your head and in front of you, you've got somewhere between 30 and 85 projects, and you've got probably 100 next actions on all the moving parts of your life right now. And if you just took a look at all that and said, I'm going to take a nap instead, that's a power nap. (laughs) You just said wow, that's more look at how many things I'm not doing way Cool a nap is more important as opposed to take a nap to avoid your life So, you know, you don't I don't a lot of stuff I do is not on any of my list But I have the freedom to do that because of my list. I know I'm not missing anything But you can only feel comfortable about what you're not doing when you know what you're not doing and most people haven't a clue
0: yeah, well, as I think about this, you know, I'm I'm getting ready to take a trip, and it's all in my head. I haven't sat down and said, "Here are the things I need to do before the trip." It's all in my head, and and I'll admit that it's causing me. <laughs> it's
1: causing I guarantee me some you, stress. Mike. Come on, if you just sat down, took pen and paper, take ten minutes and empty your head, you're going to feel more in control, more focused, more stable, uh, you know, more more capable of focusing on the right stuff at the right time about any of that. So why so you aren't just I doing to, it? Have to decide. I I don't know. (laughs) I really don't know. David Allen
0: is my guest. He's one of the foremost productivity experts in the country and author of the book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. for people who haven't been doing them, seems like a lot of work. So does it get easier the more you do it?
1: Sure. Of course it does. Anything, you know, that starts to become habitual, just a whole lot easier to do. You know, there's some keystone habits, as my friend Charles Dewey, who wrote The Power of Habit, would talk about. Look, You don't change 16 habits, change the one or two, that if you change those... That's going to change a lot of the results that happen in your life so i got one habit called get my in baskets and backlog to zero every 24 to 48 hours that forces me to make decisions about ugly emails that i want to think about and you know i'm living in the netherlands and i get a bunch of stuff in dutch and it's like oh god google translate am i gonna have to boot that up again to try to figure out are they trying to give me money do they want money from oh god but i don't make myself have to do that i just have the habit of getting all that stuff cleaned up and that forces me to then do the make the hard decisions and go through all the stuff I need to go through. So, the quite frankly, I mean, sorry, Mike, the reason you're you're not doing it is you're just addicted to stress. You're addicted to the, not addicted, meaning you have to go shoot it up. It just means you're willing to tolerate the feeling you're having right now about the vacation. I'm not. Yeah. Well. So you just need to raise the, raise the bar in terms of your internal experience. Are you are you are you okay with tolerating that feeling?
2: No,
0: you know Up as you. I as I talk to you and think about it, the, you know what I think it is. I, I think I like the game. I think I like the stress of the game of will I remember everything? And if it's all written down, there's no game. It's too easy. And and fine. And so I think yeah, you're right. I so like the stress. It,
1: yeah, enjoy the, So enjoy the game. But it didn't sound like you were enjoying the game <laughs> yeah. when you mentioned
0: it to me. Well, yeah, I, I probably don't. I, it's I, I didn't say this was a good thing. It just. I, but I think I think that's what it is. I mean, it just seems like. will i remember to do everything before the plane takes off and i like that challenge in in some kind of perverse way and you don't
1: no i don't at all I i usually rush on the front end so i can relax on the
0: back and you know what's so amazing about that is when i do rush on the front end and relax on the back it's so nice yeah, really. yeah. So let's talk about some specific strategies people can use, because so far we've been talking fairly globally about this problem and how it happens and all. But so what can people do? And they may not like all the suggestions, but w- what can people do to help this?
1: My calendar, for instance, does not have I'd like to do stuff. It's I've got to do stuff on Friday. It's my got to's. It's my hard landscape external commitments, appointments, things that have to happen on Friday, not before, not after, but sometime that day, as well as information I need to know about that day. Those are the three things on my calendar. So the night before, I glance at my hard landscape, the calendar for the next day or two, to see how late I can sleep in the morning. I'm a big sleep fan, so I like to sleep as long as I can, so I need to just check on that. So once I do that, you know, then I get up in the morning, I have some lemon water to cleanse my system, I have a great cup of French press coffee. I read the New York times on my iPad. I play a couple of games of words with friends to get my brain sort of kick started. Now we've got a new puppy. So probably take the puppy out to do what she does. And then I plan as little as I can get by with and I do what I feel like doing, but I have all the inventory of options out in front of me because I've got the system is current. And once a week I do a real cleanup and catch up what we call the weekly review, where once a week I, you know, go through and clean up all my lists, get them current, make sure I've captured any new stuff, you know, that's come up in the last seven days or so, you know, that I haven't yet clarified as a project or something I need to do about it and make sure that I get my inventory clear that leaves me clean and free to just be making spontaneous intuitive choices for the most part during the week about what I feel like doing. Cause I know I'm not missing anything.
0: So when you say that you put things on your calendar that have to be done, are you saying that it all gets done? Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Or I have to renegotiate it if it's an appointment that I have to change for some reason. But there's not much on my calendar except what I got to do. Right? That's what the calendar is for, for me. The other thing, all the other things are things to do in and around the calendar, but I don't rewrite those. I don't move them from day to day and then feel guilty that I didn't do all the stuff I told myself I'd like to do. Life's moving too fast.
0: But there has been, I've heard the advice of, you know, you put too much on your to-do list and then what you you prioritize and the things at the bottom that you don't get
1: done, you push them to the next day. Yeah, well, that's a terrible way to try to use your calendar. You just create guilt and frustration when you do that. Why don't you keep a list that's more specific to what it really means, which I'm going to get this done as soon as I can get it done around all the have-tos and also around all the surprises and interruptions and things I didn't expect that's going to show up, which is at least 40 or 50% of your day.
0: How much time does it take you? I guess I think one of the things people worry about is it, I'm spending three hours planning my day. I don't want to spend three hours planning. I have all these lists and calendars and things. I just do what I need to do.
1: Yeah, I do too. Well,
2: how just,
0: long, how long it, does it, it take it, you?
1: doesn't take any. Time. If you followed me around today, it's like uh, the number of, of how much time I've spent looking at my lists and my calendar, and my systems, maybe 23 seconds. That's all I need to do. But See, I, you don't have time to think, Mike. I don't either. I need to ha- you need to have already thought. So because I've already thought, I have the freedom to then be making, you know, spontaneous, intuitive decisions about what I feel like doing. So I pretty much do what I feel like doing. I mean, my prioritization is what's most got my attention right now. Change that light bulb, write a business plan. Uh, deal with that ugly email, or just go have fun with the puppy. I make that at a moment-to-moment decision.
0: Don't you find
1: that that life dishes up things that aren't on your calendar? Oh, all the time. That's why I keep everything clean and pristine and keep my backlog. If I'm not doing anything else, Mike, I'm cleaning up backlog to zero because there's something like that coming toward me. I can't see, and when that hits, I don't want any unclarified, uncaptured, unorganized stuff lurking in the background, which is going to then bother me about any input, even if it's cool stuff, because I'm not sure how to evaluate it against all the other commitments I've got. So I have all my commitments. Very, very, I could show them to you. I can show them to me in 30 seconds. And so I can very quickly then assess that sp- surprise, that phone call, that invitation to go boogie at a party or whatever. I can just make a judgment call at the moment, you know, about what to do. So w- that's, that's, that's a lot more fun. See, most people think I'm some anal retentive OCD corporate, you know, buttoned down kind of guy. If you meet me, or hang out with my life, you'll see I'm just the opposite. I love being spontaneous and intuitive and follow my intuitive hunches about what to do at any point in time. That's how I came up with GTD. So I had the freedom to do that without any downside. So when you talk
0: to people or they talk to you, what is the the thing or things that people seem to have the most trouble with?
1: First of all, just like you, you keep stuff in your head. Why? You know, if you ever wrote things down and felt more comfortable and more in control and reverse engineered that, why why would you ever keep anything in your head? Your head's not designed to do that. So first of all, it's just the habit. It gives you a false sense of control, Mike, to keep stuff in your head. And that's a pretty big addiction for most people is to try to keep their world in control. So you don't want to look at it. You want to try to contain it there. Oh my God, if I, I already feeling out of control. If I get it out of my head, I'm going to feel worse. So, you know, sorry, that's. Just what I've seen in 35 years and thousands of people I've worked with about all this. Second thing is even if you got it out of your head, you're resisting making next action and outcome decisions real specific about those things. What do you need to decide about those? What are you committed to do? What, you know, what does done mean and what does doing look like and where does it happen? And that's a thought process. It's a cognitive muscle. You actually have to train because you're not, do- you're not born doing that. It's actually you have to train yourself to think that way and then you have to have some trusted external system to park the results so that your brain can truly let it go know you're going to see the the right list at the right time so you're not missing anything that you've got any commitments about so any one of those could be where you fall off
0: but do you find that do people say you know i've i've pretty much got this nailed it, it's just email i can't seem to get a handle on or you know my, if my phone my phone just drives me nuts or is it anything like
1: that Mm, Well, that's kind of a lot of people's complaints out there. It's just volume. But, you know, I say, you know, they're letting email pile up. Why are you letting it pile up? You only want to take out half your garbage. Oh, yeah. Mike, just tonight, just take the stinky part of your garbage out. (laughs) Leave the rest in there. Uh, (laughs) Duh. I don't think so. Oh, just leave. uh, Why don't you leave the mail that's not really, really important in your mailbox? (sighs) Of course not. So it's just a volume issue, but it's the same thing. Whether I ask you to do something walking down the hall or send you an email about it, what's the difference? Or, you know, or a WhatsApp, or it doesn't matter. If you're getting input, what are you going to do with that input? If you've let it into your system, first of all, if you don't want it, stop it. But if it's something that is potentially meaningful that you might, would, could, should decide or do something about. You damn well better do that. Otherwise, it's going to be, you know, it's going to wrap around some part of your subliminal psyche and just keep spinning in there and taking up space not available for creative, intuitive thinking.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think there is an epidemic of, I'll get to that later. I mean, it just seems that people hold on to things, oh, I'll get to that email later. And you never do,
1: or maybe you do, but, but you're right. In, well, in the meantime, it's There's it sits actually nothing wrong with that as long as you park it in the right place. You could create a folder in your email system that says stuff I might want to get to later. Just move the stuff over there. So you don't have to keep rethinking in your email inbox which is trash, which is reference, which is stuff I still need to do. You still are sitting there you know, having to rethink all that stuff as opposed to I, I've now decided what this is, what it means. Let me park it in those kind of categories. Well, I know no one
0: who has thought about this and researched this and figured this out better than you have. So I appreciate you sharing what you know. My guest has been David Allen, and the book is Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, David.
1: Thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. It's been a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Have you ever felt as if your brain was just in a fog, that you just weren't at your best? Even if you put into practice all the advice you just heard from David Allen in the last segment, there are still times in your life, I suspect, when you just feel off your game. You don't perform well. Maybe there's a lot of stress in your life, or you're not getting enough sleep. Something is causing that brain fog. Dr. Mike Dow is a psychotherapist who has studied brain fog. He's the author of a couple of books, including... Healing the broken brain, the brain fog fix, and your subconscious brain can change your life. Hi Mike, thanks for coming on Something You Should Know.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I think when you say the word, the term brain fog, people know what it is, they know how it feels, they've had that sensation, but how do you define it?
2: So brain fog is sort of this umbrella term. Uh, It's for people who are feeling gray, cloudy, uh, maybe there's a little bit of uh, mood, depression, uh, maybe it's not as bright as it used to be. Uh, and we know that more and more Americans are really experiencing this brain fog, that scatterbrain or that mommy brain or those having those senior moments. Uh, those are all what I would call brain fog, which is the brain not optimized, the brain not really functioning at its best, uh, so to speak.
0: And that comes as a result of what?
2: our American lifestyle. (laughs) So basically everything we do. So, so many things have have changed uh, in America. Uh, We know that our diet has shifted. We used to eat a lot of anti-inflammatory omega-3s. Now we're eating a lot of pro-inflammatory omega-6s in the forms of factory-farmed meats, um, non-organic non dairy. We know that we're spending uh, less and less time with the people that we love, and ironically, social media is now making a lot of people antisocial. You know, uh, we in the beginning, Facebook was meant to connect you it, to reestablish real friendships and, and relationships, catching up with that person from college. Now, people live online. Uh, we also know that we are taking more sleeping pills, more Adderall. So all of these things together, the, the higher levels of stress that Americans have. It really wreaks havoc on the brain. We combine that with the diet, our sedentary lifestyle, because of course our commutes are getting longer, so we're sitting more, we're working longer hours. All of these are contributing factors, and it really is an integrative way to understand what is causing the problem, but also that the integrative way could be part of the solution.
0: I imagine that brain fog is not itself a medical diagnosis. Is there a medical diagnosis name for what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So no, you cannot be diagnosed with brain fog as in terms of what your doctor is going to code to your insurance company, but there are a lot of diagnosable conditions that are actually common forms of brain fog. So if you're feeling gray, uh, maybe you're going to see mild cognitive impairment. And a lot of people with that MCI, mild cognitive impairment, eventually go on to uh, receive a diagnosis of dementia. So if you're having problems with memory or scatterbrain, uh, that is one diagnosis. A lot of people feeling inattentive. um, And because of our multimedia multitasking, uh, a lot more people are feeling inattentive. So Maybe these people are getting a diagnosis of ADHD, inattentive attentive type. Um, some people are getting a diagnosis of insomnia, others an anxiety disorder or depression. Uh, so it's really what flavor of, of brain fog do you have? But I think in all of these people, they all say that something just doesn't feel right. I just don't feel like myself. My brain is just not the way it used to be. So that is really how you know if you have brain fog.
0: So is the trick to cut those things out that are causing it?
2: Yeah, it's really a lifestyle shift. You know, there was this really interesting study that was just published that sort of r- validated all of the things that I recommend, and it's really about an integrative lifestyle shift. This study followed 2,000 people over six years, and check your score right now. Do you do this? Do you not smoke? If so, give yourself a point. Do you exercise uh, at least 150 150- minutes a week. Number three, do you consume a brain-supporting Mediterranean diet? Do you drink just a little? So a little bit of alcohol is actually great for the brain. A lot is terrible. So if you are a light alcohol drinker, give yourself a point. And five, um, engaging in cognitive activities. Because remember, when it comes to the brain, use it or lose it. And that can be all sorts of things. It could be challenging yourself in a new class. It could be uh, playing a a brain game, um, any sort of board game. And we know that people who uh, actually answered yes, to all four or five of those questions had a whopping 60% decreased risk of developing dementia. So we know that it's sort of, I like to call it health math, where one plus one equals three and one plus one plus one equals ten. So the more things that you do, lifestyle, exercise, diet, um, social connection, um, really challenging yourself, the more your brain is going to change from this foggy state to a, a really bright one.
0: So my guess, my sense is that people already, for the most part, have a sense of that, that something's wrong and that they need to get off social media. They need to eat better. But they don't. They don't. So what's the motivation here? How do you motivate people who know what the problem is or have a sense of it and say, but I'm sorry, I'm not doing that.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I really believe that people have to connect with their why. Why are you doing this? And then there's, you know, to be honest, we know that uh, with a little bit of scare, (laughs) when you hear some of these stats like just being moderately overweight drastically increases your risk of dementia and brain fog, I think that makes a lot of people say, oh, whoa, I had no idea. That's really shocking. That is really scaring me uh, because I don't think most people fear – heart disease, as much as they fear brain fog, because our brain, think about it, it's not only our most important organ, our brain makes us who we are. So to lose that, I would say that most people find that scarier. In fact, uh, there was this one study that found that people said that they feared losing their cognitive abilities and dementia more than cancer. So this is scary, but it's also that wake-up call. It's also that as scary as it is, if you add an omega-3 food to your diet every day, if you walk a mile every day, if you engage in a social activity this week, these are all little things that you can do that can drastically reduce your risk. So as scary as it is, there's also so much you can do.
0: Well, that, that like you say, nobody really fears heart disease because even if it comes, it's going to come in 20 years. It's not tomorrow. But brain fog, th- th- what you're talking about, is either here or just around the corner.
2: Yeah, that's right. And you know, I think a lot of people only used to fear brain fog when they were 60, 70, 80, and beyond. But we're now seeing that younger and younger, you know, millennial brains are getting foggy. We know that if you are the kind of person who is checking your iPhone while watching TV, while working on your laptop, your brain starts to lose the ability to focus on a task and to filter out the irrelevant stimuli. So if you're working in a shared office space, it's like you can't focus on what you're doing when you need to focus. So now a 25-year-old brain is experiencing brain fog. We also know that certain foods are shrinking our brains. So if you're eating a lot of carbs from white bread, if you're eating a lot of red meat, so if you're having that, let's say you're having that cheeseburger, that and a soda for lunch, we know from research that all of those foods are shrinking your brain. And that occurs not just when you're 60, but through the whole lifespan. So now A 25-year-old, a 27-year-old, a 35-year-old can all experience brain fog. Uh, So we really know that it's not just something to worry about when it's too late. Uh, An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So be sure that wherever you are, however old you are, no matter what you're doing, if you're somebody who's recovering from a stroke and you have some brain issues or if you just have a young, vibrant 25-year-old brain, everything that you do today, everything that you put in your mouth is going to affect the health of your brain.
0: You have to acknowledge, though, that the kinds of changes that you are talking about are are really changes in habit that people eat habitually, and they do things habitually, and those habits are hard to break.
2: I like to tell people, don't focus so much on what you're not doing. Focus on what you're adding that's healthy. So instead of telling yourself, okay, you can't have hamburgers anymore you know you can have hamburgers but i would really like you to focus on you need to eat one of the best fruits for your brain, which is organic blueberries, you need to figure out how you can add one omega-3 superfood a day today. So instead of having, you know, bacon for breakfast, a cheeseburger for lunch, and a steak or grilled chicken for dinner, maybe one of those meals you say, you know what, I'm going to have some rainbow trout, or I'm going to have some walnuts, I'm going to have arctic char or wild salmon, which are four amazing omega-3 superfoods. So it's really that, that pivot of... I can't do this to, you know, you can. And, you know, by the way, even changing your self-talk, we know that instead of saying, I can do this, talk to yourself in the second person and say, you can do this. You're an incredible person who wants to change your diet. Research shows that if your self-talk is in that second person that you, make the voice inside your head that you, uh, like an inner cheerleader or coach, because we see in research that uh, that helps people to reach their goals faster.
0: There's a tendency I think to look at all of the kinds of things you're talking about and say, you know, I can't do all of that. And then when you try and you fail the first time, you say, well, see, I can't do. I can't do this. It's hard.
2: So it's really catching yourself whenever you notice uh, catastrophic thinking. Whenever you notice personalization, when you are blaming yourself for something, whenever you notice polarized thinking, a lot of perfectionists, including myself, I deal with this. Where it's if it's not a complete success, it's a complete failure. If it's not a hundred percent, it feels like an F. So really watch those thought patterns. And you know, the one hack that I have for that is ask yourself. What's the contrary evidence? So you can start to be more aware of your thinking because our thinking affects our behaviors. So whenever you're noticing a negative thought, just give yourself that proof, sort of like you're in a courtroom and you are the defense attorney and that other attorney who's nasty is saying, you're a terrible person or this is all your fault. And then you're fighting back. So you're having these dialogues in your head and just like you're taking the first person to that second person and talking to yourself in that you, you got this, Use that same voice and say, "You know what? there are lots of times when my worst case scenario fear didn't come true uh, and, and so we're sort of starting to use our mind to change the brain
0: it's so interesting to me how we see we see this in ourselves we see it in other people and and somehow we're just we just think it it comes with the it comes with the day it's just part of who we are it's just nothing we can do and clearly there are plenty of things we can do
2: i something you just said I really like. There is something in the human brain that when a behavior or a way of living becomes normalized, that normalization feeds the behavior. So when you look around, and most Americans are eating this way, and most other people I know sit around and don't exercise, and most of the other people I know are on their phones all day, um, are checking social media all, all day long. And when a behavior is adapted and and really becomes the new norm, it does something to us that makes it harder to change. Um, So I think we have to flip that around. I think we have to say, I want to be abnormal. If this is where our society is going, if this is the norm, well, guess what? I don't want to be the norm. I want to be the maverick. I want to be the person who is not going to fall into the statistic of the skyrocketing rates of all of these major diseases, which in the end turns into some very uh, gray uh, diagnoses like dementia. Alzheimer's disease, major depressive disorder, and you say, you know what, I'm going to do something different. And we know in the past five years, study after study has confirmed that, for example, the Mediterranean diet can treat people who've been diagnosed with major depression. Isn't that incredible? Uh, Ten years ago, 15 years ago, people would have said, oh, you can't treat depression with diet. But now we know we have the proof that, yes, you can can because the med diet is so filled with uh, anti-inflammatory foods, omega-rich foods, omega-3-rich foods, um, antioxidants. So, you know, it's just incredible. Uh, lifestyle is is really winning these days. In the days of having a pill for everything, uh, we know that there's just a huge risk. Um, and if you can do something by changing your lifestyle, that is always the preferred mode of action.
0: You know, it's funny when you were saying that, uh, I was with some people and uh, w- for lunch and we all sat down for lunch and they all immediately picked out, picked up their phones and started checking whatever they were checking. So guess what I did? I, and I uh, wouldn't have normally done it, but well, they were doing it. I felt like an idiot sitting there not doing it. So I did it.
2: Yeah, right. We are creatures of, yeah, it's like when somebody yawns. It's, it's so <laughs> contagious. So, you know, what I would say is be the person who is starting the good behavior and let that be contagious too. You know, say, hey, can I talk to you about something and ask them a question about something that you're interested in. Um, you know, tell me about... Uh, your favorite part of the day today or, you know, something profound, depending on if it's a family member or, or a colleague. Uh, but when you have those open conversations and you're the maverick and you're the one swimming upstream, I know it takes more work, but at the end of the day, people will thank you.
0: It is interesting to me to see, like, it, it wasn't that long ago, you would see a group of people sitting in a restaurant or a bar or something and and they would be talking to each other. And now you're just as likely to see those people all individually staring at their phones and not talking to each other.
2: Yeah, it's really become this epidemic. And what I would say is we cannot solve this with an all-or-nothing solution. So I'm not asking people to give up their phones, but in the same way that you would go on a cleanse after a a holiday eating binge and you're going to hit the gym and you're going to eat healthier, I would say that what we need is a social media phone detox So what I recommend is, you know, find three one-hour periods every single day. Maybe it's your gym time. Maybe it's a walk with your dogs. Maybe it's a family dinner to put your phone away, turn the ringer off, and make it less uh, like a shiny, bright-colored object. You know, you can turn on the gray filter of your phone. You can charge your phone in the living room instead of the bedroom. All of these little tips and tricks to help your brain become more mindful, to be more present. You know, we know that you're actually changing the brain. The mind, what you do every single day and how you choose to think and how you choose to live, changes the brain. It changes the physical structure of the brain. So, you know, people who meditate have thicker prefrontal cortexes, which is the most advanced part of the brain. People who do the opposite, who are mindlessly checking their phones all day, aren't using that really advanced part of their brain and they're not going to experience the same benefits of having that thicker prefrontal cortex.
0: Does doing all this just get you back to ground level or do you actually, do you actually sense the difference in a positive way or you just get back to zero?
2: people will experience a profound shift you know in just a couple of weeks two or three weeks you'll start to feel something and maybe for you it's return to normal you know i believe that in a lot of ways we have gotten so far away from normal that returning to that normal can feel really refreshing, like a relief, rejuvenating. And if you can just get there, uh, there are so many rewards and you will feel better. You'll be sleeping better. You're going to have more energy. All of these things that I know everybody wants. And it's just in a lot of ways, everything that I'm talking about, Mike, isn't new information. I I feel like everybody actually says, okay, I know that to be true, but what if you actually did it? What if you actually got your brain back to that way that we used to live that was healthier, that was more connected, that was uh, eating a healthier diet? What if you actually did that? I dare you to do it, and I dare you to see uh, as an experiment just how much better you will feel because I believe it's going to be profound.
0: Well, I think everyone listening has had that experience of not being at their best, of not feeling uh, in control, of having that brain fog that you talk about. And this is good advice to combat all of it. Dr. Mike Dow has been my guest. He's a psychotherapist and author of the book, The Brain Fog Fix, as well as the book, Your Subconscious Brain Can Change Your Life. And there is a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Mike.
2: Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Of course, you know it's important to stay hydrated in the summer. And you've probably said to yourself many times, I've got to drink more water. But how do you tell if you're dehydrated? Well, experts agree that if you get to the point of being thirsty, you're already dehydrated. Another symptom is feeling tired, weak, or lightheaded. Here's a simple trick to see how dehydrated you are right now. Pinch the skin on the back of your hand. If the skin seems to stick together, you're severely dehydrated and need to head to the hospital. If your skin slowly moves back to its original position, you are mildly to moderately dehydrated and need to drink fluids immediately. If the skin bounces back to its original position quickly, you are hydrated. And that is something you should know. It's always appreciated by us if you would take a moment out to recommend this podcast to someone you know, and they'd probably appreciate it too. I'm Mike Ruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know